to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Corlew, and with, with me as always is my co-host, Bob Zakora. Hey there. Talking, talking. <laughs> Just talking today. <laughs> <laughs> no poems today. Uh, talking about our feelings. <laughs> talking about how quarantine's treating us. Oh. Uh, no, we're talking about po- uh, prose poems today. Prose poems, one of my favorite Genres of poetry, or poetic techniques, I suppose. As is in the name, prose poems are first and foremost an exercise in genre bending. Uh, Once poetry moved out of being defined by rigid classifications with meter and rhyme, like sonnets and villanelles or whatever, the definition of poetry kind of became, well, the author calls this a poem, so it's a poem. Um, would you, would you agree? Is that what you, is that, what's, what's your definition of a poem? Oh, uh... I have a good answer for this. Um. <laughs> well, we'll get to it. Uh, the intro is not the place to get into a whole discussion of what defines a poem, uh, or else we'll never get out of the intro. So it's probably more useful to interrogate why anyone would call a piece of prose a poem. A prose poem is distinct from a piece of flash fiction or a 100-word blog post or a six-inch six news item from the Associated Press. But how? What exactly sets it apart? If a lyric poem is supposed to be a short, intensely condensed description of a feeling or moment, it doesn't necessarily need line breaks to convey that feeling. So maybe it's the intentionality of the language. But there's, some, there's something beyond a, being a succinct narrative that goes into crafting of a prose poem. But judging the intentionality of language can lead to a slippery slope of elitist gatekeeping, so that's not a perfect metric either. Personally, as both a fiction writer and a poet, I've settled on a couple of key thoughts. Uh, one, it's not my place as a reader to litigate genre distinctions. Um, if the author says it's a poem, then okay, it's a poem. And two, there's a bit of a sense of um, what famed Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, yes, that's his name, <laughs> said when he was talking about porn. I know it when I see it. Uh, the second idea does sort of problematize the first, but that's where I'm at. Um, I imagine this conversation will be uh, a continuing through line for this whole podcast, not just this episode, because there's never really a satisfactory definition of what constitutes a poem, and boundaries are endlessly fun to explore and play with. Bob, you once told me, and I quote, genocide is pretty bad, but prose poetry is the worst atrocity human beings have ever wrought upon each other. Do you still feel that way? I did not say that. Wow. I was... I was ready for the, the simple I hate prose poems <laughs> to be defensive about that stance uh, and to say yeah. I don't hate prose poems. <laughs> you have to be uh, you have to be vivid. You have to be you be specific. Come at me hard and fast here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Part of the joy in preparing for these podcasts is throwing curveballs at Bob. Absolutely. I never know what I'm in for. I say like, <laughs> right, right, like defining poetry is like an entire 45 minute class period to start off a poetry class. And, right. And yeah. And you get a hundredth of the way through it. <laughs> so at the end of the class period, we say, well, we still don't know. And we'll find out. We'll see if we find out next time. <laughs> we'll play that game the entire semester. <laughs> be like, exactly. Shit, we don't know what poetry is. <laughs> um, I have a bias against prose poems that I think I don't have the strongest um, 
defense of that bias. I don't, it's it just a, a total gut preference thing of at some point in my reading, um, I got a couple too many of these just like lumps of text on a page and just said, boy, this doesn't look like something I want to read right now. <laughs> you know, I will, I, I will definitely uh, get in your corner on that. I've read a few books where, to me, the ideal prose poem is like very short paragraphs. Mm-hmm. One paragraph is preferable. A few paragraphs is fine. But like I've read books, the, the book Language, Death, Night Outside, uh, which I can't remember the author's name now, but it comes to mind. It's just a a wall of text, like a 10-inch single-spaced wall of text, every page for like 85 pages. Right. And I remember liking the poem, but just not being able to get through the book um, <laughs> and just being like, I can't, I can't do this. This is miserable. Right. I also, I thought you were going to go the route of um, prose poems are very easy for beginning poets to write and they can get tedious to read if you're in a beginning poet workshop, I feel like. Um, okay. Maybe that was just my college experience. Yeah, I can understand the appeal of, yeah, I'm reading this for the way it looks on the page. I like the line breaks. I like the the short form. The I, I like, for instance, I also love sonnets. I like that it's just 14 right. lines and you're out, you know, like right. that sort of thing. Right. Uh, as you're saying this, you're making things come to mind. Um, the first, I think, because um, when you put it that way of like, it's a friendly form for beginners, that actually makes me really excited. Um, mm-hmm. I like that idea, even though I think, if I had a group of students, you know, introduction to creative writing kind of thing, and I said, we're writing a poem today, it has to be prose, even after like some examples, some of them would still be like, I'm not so sure about this, but also they're not so sure about um, a lot of assignments. <laughs> the point of a, a creative writing class, I think, is to like make everyone uncomfortable and come up and do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Almost um, definitely. But um, I... Uh, during my undergrad, my first workshop, I must have told you this story, but it's been so long. And there's a lot of weird things about that first workshop. Um, I did not have, um, kind of the guy who became the go-to, like the main creative writing person on our campus, um, for that first course. I had someone who'd been teaching there for a longer time and the books for the class were one, a copy of the literary journal that he founded and ran for like 25 years. Okay. And then two was an anthology of prose poems. And there was this attitude that he wanted to challenge us on every line break. And essentially kind of, I think is, which I think is an interesting and valuable thing to push on writers. Yeah. Um, like, like be, be able to defend what you're doing. Um, but one, this was, this was poetry one workshop. <laughs> so it was right. a lot. Um, and two, then like that turned into a lazy of like, well, if I'm not going to have him press me on this, like, do I just write a prose poem every week? Um, sure. you know, that, that I found really frustrating as a 19 year old. Um, sure. so apparently that has stuck with me for over a decade. <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, I'm going to, when we get to my poem, I'm going to talk a little bit about my first workshop too. I also want to do a quick disclaimer that, um, it is inevitable that Bob and I's personal preferences towards what we like as writers is going to come up in this podcast. Right. But I would like to say that we are not here to be the arbiters of what is good and bad poetry. <laughs> um, we are we are not here to shit on anyone else's aesthetic or sure. uh, anything like that. We, we we don't want this to be like a judgmental space. But you know, we are writers and readers and workshop veterans and things like that. So our biases will come out, but. This, we want this podcast to be a non-judgmental space, no matter <laughs> <For sure. laughs> how, how many 
how many uh, jokes and stuff we make. I guess that's enough throat clearing. Let's, um, Bob, do you have a poem? I have a poem. Hey, cool. I have a poem. And uh, upon the, the little bit of researching uh, that I did, I didn't realize how much, uh, like, kind of press this poem got. I knew this book, it's it's from Nicole Seeley's Ordinary Beasts, and I, I knew that a lot of people were reading and talking about it, but I didn't realize that, like, this poem was first in the uh, New York Times, I think? I oh, wow. That. Yeah, Terrence Hayes selected it from New York Times. Uh, she talks about in the Paris Review. Like, I felt like I have quotes this time. Wow. <laughs> kind of, like, think about this poem with. Um, and, and, from, and, and I guess it, what's funny to me is that, like, uh, you know, this is a book that I have probably about 20 to 30 pages dog-eared, and this was not one. So it didn't, you know, make that um, kind of impression on me, apparently, the first time. So uh, Interesting. Yeah, because yeah. when uh, this is the first I've heard of uh, Nicole Seelis, is that how you say it? Seely. Seely. It's the first I've heard of, uh, of of this poet, and um, I really like the poem and immediately wanted to uh, um, do some more research that I didn't quite have time to before we pressed record, but um, uh, I didn't realize it got this much uh, press because, yeah, it definitely knocked me knocked me out when I read right. it. Um, yeah, so. Um, All right, so let's uh, read this. Let's do this it. This is called Even the Gods. Even the Gods Misuse the Unfolding Blue. Even the gods misread the windflowers nod towards sunlight as consent to consume. Still, you envy the horse that draws their chariot, bone of their bone. The wilting mash of air alone keeps you from scaling Olympus with gifts of dead or dying things dangling from your mouth. Your breath like the sea, inching away. It is rumored gods grow where the blood of a hanged man drips. You, unsi- you insist on being this man. The gods abuse your grace. Still, you'd rather live among the clear, cloudless white, enjoying what is left of their ambrosia. Who should be happy this time? Who brings cake to whom? Pray the gods do not misquote your covetous pulse for chaos, the black from which they were conceived. Even the eyes of gods must adjust to light. Even gods have gods. Yeah, that poem rules. First of all, I'm a sucker for any poem about how terrible the gods are. Um, uh, just, just a great, great area of exploration for me. For sure. Um, second, and this isn't. This is this is the part where I'm going to be fumbling around for a point. Um, but personally, I feel like prose poems are excellent places for. Um, anaphora and repetition mm-hmm. um i the, you know the gods hang over and haunt this whole poem right uh with their fickle terribleness and the, the uh, potential that they could cause disaster but i love the repetition of quote even the gods or simply quote the gods right. um, just over and over in the poem i feel like it's a great way to s- establish the sense of foreboding um and for some reason i feel like prose poems are really good at this okay. um 
maybe because they're like usually compact little squares. Right. So it feels like what's being hinted at is bigger than the physical poem. Hmm. If that makes sense. And there's something I really like about that. Um, Yeah. yeah, I feel like uh, Zach Schomburg, who I'm going to read from later, does this really well. And um, I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head, but like, uh, that's something I really like about prose poetry. So I don't don't even know if that's half a point, but no, I I love it. Um, And I think you hit at something that's important to me um, in that pushes both for and against what that this first workshop teacher ha- I had was, was thinking about, but just that idea of any poem, prose or otherwise, I do want some understanding as a reader, something that I can at least grasp onto of why this form is happening. And, and I, even as I, as I start talking, I'm like, oh, gosh, just talk about form so much on the damn podcast. You, <laughs> you ever get to the content of the poem? Um, and one of the reasons for that is I, this is one of those poems that I read it and I'm like, I have a grasp of kind of thematically some stuff that's going on in here, but like I cannot give you a clear narrative or a clear, quick answer of what this is about. Probably because it's about a lot of things. Right. But I know, you know, when, when, we, when we put forth this idea of prose poems and again, knowing that I have some biases against prose poetry, um, this one stood out as I was kind of flipping through books and choosing a few in that it resists some of the things that frustrate me in prose poems. Sure. Um, As you said, with the repetition, uh, and this goes throughout the book, and I think there's only one or two prose poems in this book, um, but just an absolute preference for kind of the sonic and musical elements of a poem and giving that a lot of space, even in the prose format. You know, it's like it shouldn't, be this inherent push against from from rhyme and assonance and consonance and you know there's there's music happening in this poem there's i could i wish i had before this scanned it but i i love that in a prose poem when it like makes me want to think about those things um because that's part of yeah. why i love poetry to begin with is the song right. appeal um and too often kind of like you said that the way that prose poems um, nudge up against uh, flash fiction. Too often I see them and I go like, there's there's no music here. There's a little narrative. Right. Um, and this is so much the exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And th- that's what I feel like, here I go trying to say, that's what the best prose poems do. That's what the prose poems I like do, um, where it is still music. And uh, I guess if I'm writing, and I, I don't write a lot of, I don't like, write a lot of flash fiction, and I, I actually don't write a lot of prose poetry, but... Um, but I do like to write both of them. And I guess if I'm, if I'm sitting down thinking about what is going to be different about the other one um, with a piece of fiction, of course I'm concerned about music and the way it sounds, but the primary concern is the narrative. Whereas with poetry, it, it, with a poem, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot more focus to the sort of poetic elements of not necessarily meter, but you know, like just the way it sounds and as you read it, you know, um, kind of thing. I want to read this. Um, so in this New York Times Magazine thing, God, this was 2017. When did this book come out? I thought it was 2018. 2017. So, okay. Um, Terrence Hayes writes, and I think, again, thinking of, as you said, this uh, against the gods and kind of that uh, the relationship to religion in any poem, I think, is interesting for both of us. Um, so the, the yeah. introduction here, um, Terrence Hayes writes, 
This poem speaks with the authority of a sermon. A case for divine imperfection is made from the pulpit. Pretend you're in the audience, a member of a strange congregation. Is the preacher reprimanding your devotion? Is she praising the God's humanity? Is this a call for spiritual revolt? Unfortunately, you are not allowed to raise your hand with questions during a sermon. Instead, the message must be absorbed, inhaled, hummed, and pondered in the quiet after the service. I love that. That's, <laughs> that's a great way of thinking about that, that poem. Um, it's also funny because uh, that, that is exactly how you are supposed to take in sermons. It's just like you, you, you sit there and you, and you hear it. But both uh, my family and um, I found out later my wife's family, almost the uh, first thing we do after we get home from church uh, is like start fixing lunch and then either talk, talk about what we learned from the sermon or make fun of the sermon, <laughs> which is uh, um, the, the, the latter happens more often than the former because, um, you know, if, if, if you actually learn something, you usually kind of process it yourself. But if, if there's something to make fun of, you, you make fun of it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's cathartic. I like the idea of spiritual revolt. Um, mm. The thing that really uh, stuck out to me was it, it seems like um, an excellent distillation of how religion can be an abusive relationship sometimes, but the, um, the, it's rumored the gods grow where the blood of a hanged man drips. You insist on being this man. The gods abuse your grace. Still, you'd rather live among the clear cloudless white, enjoying what is left of their ambrosia. Right. Like, you know, and those, those few lines, like the gods are, are terrible. And the, the subject is, um, getting table scraps and hanged, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and insisting on being hanged. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like those, those couple of sentences there could be like a whole Coen brothers movie. Um, just about the the abusiveness of how organized religion can be sometimes. Right. Um, Right. Right after that, I, I, I get, I'm amazed in preparation for this. I read the poem multiple times and yet every time something somehow yeah. catches me up mid-reading, the lines right after that, I completely miss who should be happy this time? Who brings cake to whom? And those questions, not quite a Volta, but, um, you know, just like shifting gears enough. Um, yeah. I don't know. Everything about this poem, again, like like Hayes was saying, and and I think that, I, I really like that what he was his introduction there because it it speaks a lot to I think like kind of how we uh, take poetry in in general. The message must be absorbed, inhaled, hummed, and pondered um, in the quiet after the service. Um, in that this poem makes me want to read it more times. It makes me want to think about it in different ways. Um, like you mm-hmm. said, like it's 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 does make me jump in general to like my relationship to spirituality. It makes me think about yeah like. What you know? What do, what do I worship in any situation? Like, what do we worship? What is our right. relationship to that thing that we worship? Um, and where does that thing come from? Um, and I love just like yeah. pushing that pressure on it. Like, we need to call that into question, whatever it is. Right, right. And uh, you were kind of you kind of alluded to it with uh, with poetry too. You the the poem is published on the page, and then you you just as the reader, you just kind of have to sit there and and digest it. Um, and you can decide if you like it or not. You can decide if it does something for you or not. 
Um, but I think you and I both reject that sort of um, high school cliche of like, well, what's this poem about? What's this metaphor mean? Is Christopher Marlowe talking about the king here or whatever the hell, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, you know, like it's, it, it really is, you know, I, I, I think both you and I are, 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 uh, readers in the sense of if I like something in, in poetry, I want to stick with it and I want to hang around with it and I want to think about it more and things like that. And if, and if I don't like it, then I can just move on. There's a bunch of other books of poetry out there. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, to go up to the author, and be like, hey, what were you writing about? With just kind of like, you know, you don't want the comedian to explain the joke to you, you know, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. So like, I, I don't know which field is actually harder to make it work in, but... Uh... Oh, yeah. Tough call. The ceiling is higher for stand-up comedians. That's, that's true. Um, uh, Claudia Ranking doesn't have a Netflix deal. <laughs> Yet. Yes. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, once they make the uh, the uh, ten episode series of autobiography of Red, and Carson's going to be set. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any final thoughts about uh about, I might come about back the gods? To a thought, but uh, you know, I, I, right. like we said, a poem that like, and I guess something that I love about poetry in general, you know, that of like, there's so much here to digest and sit with, and I just want to read it again and again, and. I might not have anything smart to say about it. Turns out. Well, I mean, that's one of the best things a poem can do for you is make you want to read it again and again. Um, so yeah, my poem this week is, uh, the monster hour by Zach Schomburg, which, uh, funnily enough, I'm reading on friend of the show, Christopher Morgan's Tumblr blog. Hi Chris. Uh, Chris, the editor in chief of Nostrovia press. Um, this, uh, he may be surprised to know that this was the first Google hit for this poem. Um, I just, Googled it so I could read it online rather than in a book and avoid the uh, sound of page turning on my mic. And this was the first Google hit. There we go. For whatever that's worth. The Monster Hour. On the Monster Hour, there was this monster that used to come out and try to kill everybody in the audience. No one expected it, not even the producers who were told by the monster he would play a few blues tunes on the piano. The monster apologized after each show and asked for another chance. I'm planning on telling a few jokes this time, he would say. But time after time, he'd break his word and try to kill everybody. The producers finally replaced him with a gorilla in people clothes that came out and played a Wurlitzer, but they never changed the name of the show. It was always the Monster Hour. I don't think anybody understood then what a monster really was. So yeah, um, so before I say one thing, I want to say I love this poem, and I love this collection. Um... I like monster stuff. I like, <laughs> I like, uh, Zach's, uh, James Tate updated for the early aughts aesthetic. <laughs> um, I, I like how interwoven the collection is. I think this book still really holds up 13 years after it was published. But the reason I chose this poem is not because it's my favorite Zach poem, um, or even my favorite in the collection, but because for as long as I've been seriously reading poetry, um, dating back to that fateful first workshop, this poem just seemed to stick out. Um, okay. I think the first workshop I took was the first workshop everybody else in the class was taking as well. Right. Um, I think it was the first introduction to contemporary poetry that most people in the class had. And it's, it's jarring going right. from say Christopher Marlowe and Alexander Pope to dead dudes who suck to people like Harriet Mullen and Shrikanth Reddy, you know, um, to living people who are very good. 
<laughs> so, uh, it, you know, but it's a, it's a jarring adjustment to kind of learn how to read contemporary poetry. And um, by the time we got around to reading the man suit, everybody immediately loved it. Like it was a huge hit in the class. And right. um, I think part of that is Zach has a gift for making poetry, like quote unquote fun and quote unquote accessible and quote unquote understandable. And in my experience, anyone who doesn't really care for poetry or read a lot of poetry will always like a Zach Schomburg book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I've had friends, family members, et cetera, like this particular poem sticks out. Like the Monster Hour is such a good poem to the point where for a while there I was like, yeah, it's a good poem. Did you read the rest of the book? Like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and the kind of, the, the, the question I was sort of wondering with this poem, which again, I love is, does that reaction cheapen his work Mm. or is he tapping into something that all of us up our own asses academics don't get? Um, I don't love those questions, but they kind of always follow me around when I read Zach's work, who Interesting. is in my top five favorite poets, but it's always like, is this too easy? Am I a bad reader for liking this so much? Or am I a bad reader because I think it's easy and I'm missing something? Mm. Um, so that that's what kind of follows me around with, with Zach and with a lot of other prose poems, too. Um, sometimes when I read James Tate as well. And, right. Um, yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of what the questions that come up when I read this this poem. Um, you're onto something really interesting there. Of, because yeah, like the first thing that came to my mind in reading this is the idea of like, it's there's there's something really fun here, and that there's something you know kind of playful that I really admire and I think is hard to pull off well. Oh yeah, it's it's doing that narrow walking the line of there's a little narrative. Um, it's funny, but it's not a joke. And it kind of exists that with that, that final move, the last couple sentences, um, of no, we're not ending on something necessarily funny or something that you're going to laugh at or a punchline, but I'm going to make you kind of rethink what this whole little thing was about. Right. One thing I realized yesterday, uh, or the other, whenever I was reading it to prepare for this was that poem's not at all about the monster. The poem is about the speaker. Right. The poem is about the speaker learning what monstrous behavior is. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, not that coming out and trying to kill the audience isn't <laughs> monstrous, but um, the producers are the monsters for not trying to understand the monster on his own terms, <laughs> um, for uh, stealing his intellectual property with the uh, name of the show, and then just replacing him with a gorilla in people clothes, which is like a, a an, an animal who is resisting their animal nature and dressing up in people clothes to sing and dance uh, for people uh, rather than the monster who is being true to himself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm only half joking with all this. Like the, the, the poem has a narrative, but it's still about a moment in the speaker's mind. It's still about an experience the speaker has of learning what monstrous behavior is. Yeah. Which is such a, that's a great turn for me. Uh Uh-huh. Definitely. Um, and yeah, and exactly. It's it's making us examine what we consider a monster. And that's a that's a fantastic and interesting thing to do. Right. And again, I, I, I love that that move at the end is the the zoom out and the make you reread and rethink about it. You know, yeah, it, it does feel very much um oh yeah, a Volta again. Blah, poets. <laughs> <laughs> How do we live with ourselves? <laughs> Um, 
I'm glad you brought up James Tate in relationship to this um, because uh, James Tate passed away four years ago. Yes. Yeah. So that was my second year of my, yeah, my second year of my MFA. And for my workshop that semester, we had to like come up with a project. Um, I was super like wide directions of what the projects could be. And I had no freaking idea. Um, and I was pissed off by the idea of this poet passed away. I had never heard of him. And like everyone on my Twitter feed is like talking about this poet. Um, <laughs> since then, and again, we've talked about this before of, uh, you know, yeah, of, didn't read much contemporary poetry until like my undergrad, but I mean, I still like, I got some MFA and it was like, Oh shit, you really don't read enough. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and since then I've had that same experience with a lot of poets and every time I just kind of beat myself up about it, which is dumb, but you know, yeah. Have that moment of like, Grr. yeah, um, I do it too. Yeah. <laughs> I've still only read like a book and a half of James Tate, even though I really like him. I just, well, there's so, a lot out there. So my project uh, became to, read a bunch of James Tate. Um, and then there was a, a library that had, uh, audio recordings of him, a ton of them. And so I listened to him reading a bunch. Um, and so I got super familiar with his work and his voice and I love a ton of it. I actually, there's like kind of like a career arc for him where he was less prosy and then gets entirely into prose poems by the end. Like his last book, it's all prose poems. Interesting. Probably the last few I think were similar to this poem. The ones that I like, um, cause they all do kind of have this like kooky movement, um, right. you know, yeah. Like something kind of weirds this out. Something else kind of weirds this out. And he's great for me, not because, oh, this was weird. That doesn't do enough for me. Um, right. it, it's, it's the moments, um, where the turns, you know, make me look at something differently or the language makes me look at something differently. And that's totally what's going on here. Um, yeah. I admire the heck out of that. You know, I have tried that was, again, that was part of what came out of the project was like to give myself some prompts to write things based on what James Tate was doing, you know, to emulate or like use a line as a springboard. Um, and it was hard as hell. Yeah. It's really <laughs> hard. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had, you know, more than one phase and, uh, you know, when I was writing really heavily in college where, um, I would try to write these, um, Tate-esque or Schomburg-esque, like, sort of, like, soft surrealist, kind of, like, quirky but sad, you know, poems, and right. never got a good response on them from my <laughs> teachers. <laughs> and deservedly so, because it is very easy to just take, like, you know, here's some kooky imagery from, like, that you borrow from fairy tales or, right. or, or from monster or whatever, and you kind of make jokes about it or, like, you know, you treat a werewolf like a dinner guest or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that sort of thing. Um, it's very easy to just do that and then not say it, say anything. Um, it's very difficult to um, to uh, really, really turn something um, on its head and, and make it make it uh, make it bigger than the sum of the words on the page. Yeah. Um, and one thing one thing Zach does really well. Um, my favorite book of his is uh, I think it's his third book or his second book. But uh, Fjords is the name, and it's um, you know a lot of uh, a lot of standard line breaky poetry, but then like a lot of prose poems. But he it it does a lot of world building, so he has these like foreboding and like just 
dark and kind of scary like poems like right next to these joke poems but there's a lot of interwoven imagery and language Mm -hmm. and uh, metaphors returned to he actually uh, makes indexes for his collections which is really cool um because yeah you 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 finish the book and then you you see the index and you realize just how like interconnected everything is um i just think that's like a master stroke of like manuscript writing you know Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to sustain for like 60 to 80 pages you know? <laughs> uh yeah so it's easy reading but it it's really really goddamn hard to write so For that's, sure. you know that's part of what i find admirable definitely gorilla and people clothes playing a world sir like <laughs> no and oh fun fact um friend of the program adrian sobel his brother is an artist and was part of this art collective when we were back in college and uh adrian showed his brother this book uh, the man suit. Yeah. And his brother's art collective did a whole bunch of pieces, um, based on imagery from this book. Uh, and then because we were taking the class with Josh reached out to Zach and was like, Hey, this is happening. And Zach was like, Oh, I guess they, they asked him if he wanted to come read. And he was like, yeah, I'll come read. So we went out to, um, to Calb, to Calb, Illinois. Woo. Um, I, I think Shout that was out. my, <laughs> That was my first experience uh, leaving Chicago and seeing the Midwest for what it really is. And <laughs> a joy <jolly> experience, <laughs> a million percent. Boy, was it bleak! I was like, "This, this is this is different than where I live in Rogers Park." <laughs> um, the collective, their space was in a um, an abandoned Wurlitzer factory. So Zach came and read portions from the man suit and fjords. In an abandoned Wurlitzer factory. Oh, that's and amazing. It's just like, just an incredible coincidence. Oh, I love that. Ugh. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking a lot about uh, genre bending. Um, so my question this week, Bob, is who is your favorite genre bending NBA player? Um, Ooh. I'm thinking of like big guys who play like guards or vice versa, like how Ben right. Simmons is a power forward, but he plays point guard or Russell Westbrook is a point guard who happens to play power forward now. <laughs> um, uh, do you have an answer? Or do you want me to go first? What do you think? Uh, I have several answers, but you got to go first. Okay. Um, I'm going to say there are a lot of people who deserve to be mentioned here. Uh, Dennis sure. Rodman came to mind because he right. came to the league as a small forward, found his niche as a power forward. And then, now would indisputably be a center. I think that's crazy. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and, and pick a, a, a front court duo okay. as my favorite. Um, and I'm going to go with the Joakim Noah, Brad Miller front court that the Bulls had uh, for a season and a half from 2009 to 2010. Okay. I am a sucker for big guys who play up top and facilitate while guards right. are like roaming around the perimeter and cutting the basket and things like that. Obviously that Bulls offense still had like Derrick Rose as point guard. So like, they weren't the exact hub of the offense, <laughs> but I loved how Brad Miller, uh, who, by the way, this is the second best NBA redneck of all time. Um, um, uh, I loved how Brad Miller and Joaquin kind of worked in the high post while like Derek Rose and Ben Gordon and Luol Deng and Dorcas Kirk Heinrich ran around doing stuff. The uh, platonic example of this combination of course is chris weber and vlade divac um with the kings um and there's a through line there because brad miller played on those teams too and then right that's right they traded him to the bulls and joakim says that brad miller was the one who kind of taught him to pass um like that and things like that so there's kind of like a through line between these 
two teams that I'm very sentimental about, the Bulls like pre-Thibodeau and the Kings when they were also Rams with the Lakers. But yeah, I uh, I just really like uh, big men who can pass and that combination of just two of the coolest weirdos in the NBA ever, Brad Miller and Joakim Noah. Like, I mean, yeah, just just a great combination. So that's that's my that's my entry. Big two big guys that play very similarly to guards, even not necessarily with like three. Well, Brad Miller had three point range, but you know, not necessarily like people you think of as stretch fours or stretch fives, but just like they just have this weird skill set that puts them in the guard spot very frequently. I love it. So so that's mine. Okay. Uh, I similarly, some of the first places my mind went was the the passing big man of uh, Jokic is incredible. Jokic, Uh, yeah. I, I I was thinking uh, my mind immediately. Actually, the first one I went to was just just the way that I you know what position does Giannis play? Because uh, mm-hmm. you know he's essentially scoring like Shaq at this point. Um, right. He does also dribble and do wing stuff and defend the wing. Um, right. But I I I'm very happy that I was able to quickly find the answer. I love a guy who plays uh, a bigger position than he is. Um, okay. And uh, I've loved this guy for a long time, but he truly came into this. Uh, I don't know about a long time, maybe a couple of years, but uh, he came into it uh, this season uh, by necessity. That's the one, the only center for your Houston Rockets, PJ Tucker. <laughs> this, this is a, for anyone who hasn't played pickup basketball with Bob, PJ Tucker is a wonderful pick for you. <laughs> Absolute gamer. Never afraid of anything. Boxes <laughs> out, sets screens. Um, oh, I, plays I, bigger than he is. He's just clearly he's got to be so strong. Um, and I feel like he's old now for NBA player. Um, right, he's definitely been around for a while. So like taking this guy who's you know the latter half of his career, if not his prime. Um, and forcing him to DM big guys. Uh, just yeah. Because uh, I don't remember who did they, they got Robert Covington. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, they got Bobby Cobb. Yeah. Cause you thought another wing was more important than Clint Capella, which I think they were right about, but anywho, um, and, and we didn't even get to see the experiment that long, um, but I have long appreciated him and this just upped it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I, I, I I am a noted Rockets hater, but I love that they (laughs) really leaned into that strategy. Like, I love, like, P.J. Tucker's our center, Robert Covington's our power forward, and that's how we're playing. (laughs) We're doing Um, it, yeah. We're doing it. Um, And, yeah, P.J. Tucker is 6'5". I think think Covington is 6'7". Yeah. And those are the two tallest players on their team, Um, (laughs) which is just nuts. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great pick. Um, 2020 let's do it <laughs> yeah I, I really want to see them in a playoff series I really yeah. want to see how it how it actually works in a in a seven game series fingers crossed uh, yeah. yeah we'll see PJ Tucker's a great pick that's yeah uh, um, what a dude I mean he probably he's not taller than Anthony Mason <laughs> <laughs> like um, but like were he on the 93 Knicks he would be playing shooting guard next to Anthony Mason as a small <laughs> forward Another Bob classic. Love me some Anthony Mason. Love oh. Anthony Mason. Uh, Tennessee State University alum, Anthony Mason. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. All right. Well, I think we got an episode. I think we got an episode. Um, 
I had an idea for how to sign off, but I lost it. Oh, <laughs> man. Should we wax prosaic about what that idea could have been? <laughs> um, that might be a little much. <laughs>